just going to turn it over to Brother Zach, and he's going to give us an encapsulation of justification by faith. Well, really what I was thinking to do in this part is last week I think we really firmly established that um, we believe that relationship is eternal life, and we define everything around relationship. We don't do that because we think that's a good idea. We do that because we believe that that's what Scripture teaches. And what I wanted to show today is that, one, we firmly believe in justification by faith. And I want you to be able to say that as well. When someone asks you, do you believe that someone is justified by faith? I want you to be able to say, yes, we firmly believe that. But I thought maybe a basic demonstration could show you something interesting that maybe you haven't thought in these terms. So I'm going to read largely because I don't want my thoughts to get scattered. And I apologize if that takes away from a bit of the dynamic of it. But um, I do think I want to be very concise here to get through this. So it is our conviction that most of the tension that is felt when reading various passages of Scripture that are discussing faith and works are tensions that are created by the misunderstanding of terms. So does everyone follow me there? We're saying that that Scripture acts like it's shooting at one another, but it's doing that because we have mislabeled terms. We have wrongly defined them. If we get those terms right, a harmony comes to Scripture rather than a combativeness. Okay, I want to demonstrate this by starting with James 2. And, And here I'm going to just read the passage, James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe this and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So I don't think that any honest Bible student right now does not understand that the writer is making a distinction between mental assent and what he is calling faith. Would everyone agree with this? Amen. do you, do you know the Shema off the top of your head? Yes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you think that there were Jews who fell into the ritual of repeating that Shema every day and feeling that that's what makes them right with God? Absolutely. Okay, and so James says, you believe that God is one, quoting the Shema, and says, great, Demons believe that as well, but that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about faith. Everyone following? Yes. Okay, so if we allow the writer to make this important distinction that he is laboring to make, namely that Jews were repeating a creed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and believing that repeating those creeds somehow was the equivalent of saving faith, we can build off the writer's distinction to rightly define our term. Meaning that if we allow James to say exactly what he's saying, don't twist it, then we can say we've got to rethink faith and make sure we give it the right definition because he is making a distinction between faith and mental assent. Amen. Okay, rightly defining our terms then, we are convinced we'll allow for scriptures not to combat each other, but be harmonious. Here we go. Since the scripture we just read in James makes clear that faith is not mental assent, but rather faith is a trusting relationship with an unseen God, we can rightly frame the debate that is happening in the New Testament. Now, some of you might have said, well, you just snuck one past us because you just defined faith not as mental assent, but a trusting relationship in an unseen God. Well, I understand that that's how I'm defining it. But what I'm going to ask you is that as we go on this experiment right now, 
and we plug in trusting relationship for the word faith in various passages of scripture, do you think it is capturing the author's intent better than if we continue to use the word faith in which we have all these different definitions, including what most people think, a moment in time in which I said a sinner's prayer? Everyone following? Okay. So then I'm going to say this. I think what's being combated in scriptures on works can be summarized in this way. Works in all of its varieties describe an approach to God that does not want relationship, but a formula to solve the God problem. We said that a lot in the last broadcast, but I just want to bring it up again. There are numerous routes that the flesh will take to absolve oneself from the demands of singular relationship with God. Relationship with God is demanding. He is a jealous God and will have no other gods before him. So it is an intense thing that he is asking us to step into. And our flesh will do just about anything to redefine the parameters of engagement so as to to clear our conscience or make us feel okay. So let's look at some of those varieties. This includes outward acts that clean up the exterior, but leaves the inward man still defiled. Jesus said thus, you polish the outside of the cup, but inwardly you are unclean or defiled. Some varieties include assent to doctrinal creeds that remove the demand of relationship. We just saw that. But how about in modern times? We see something in in the modern trend that's interesting. A powerful encounter with God as the equivalent of a lifelong trusting relationship with God. Don't we do that? A one-off experience. A a one-off powerful encounter now is, okay, I get it. It's all about relationship. I had that 10 years ago when I had that powerful move at the conference I was at. Yeah. Again, that is not what Scripture is defining faith as. Okay? Uh, Perhaps you have heard this one. I got saved. I don't need to continue in a yielded relationship with the unseen God. I already took care of that damnation issue. When I prayed this prayer, prayer, I wrote on the card, I came forward at the service. That, yet again, is another works-based salvation. Okay, so last week we firmly established that saving faith is intimate knowing of God. We must reject both the attempt to solve the demands of authentic relationship with God by only outward acts, a moment encounter, or mental assent of doctrinal creeds. Can I just say, can I just interject here? Yes. When you say we firmly established that faith is uh, not mental assent, but it is a trusting relationship with God, Scripture speaks of our salvation in the new covenant in two ways. It speaks of it as a knowing of God, a a relationship with God, and it speaks of it by faith. We have to harmonize those in order for them not to be contradicting. So all of the scriptures that say this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the scriptures like that cannot be contradicting Paul when he says we are justified by faith and this is how we have eternal life. So we have to harmonize those. And the simplest harmony is to recognize that the way they looked at faith was a higher level of trust than formulaic works. Amen. So James is battling the works variety that wants to solve the God issue with a creed. Does everyone see that? Yes, you're saying that James is also dealing against works. James is dealing against works. His works is those who want to approach God with a doctrinal creed and say, I'm good from that point on. Okay, Paul in Ephesians, Galatians, and Romans, and other places, is looking to address the works variety that wants an outward act, such as circumcision, to settle the issue. 
Okay, so James is dealing with creedal works, and Paul is dealing with behavioral works. But Amen. they're both dealing with formulas that man can hide behind. Amen. The answer to both misunderstandings is a trusting relationship that by his spirit forms a union with the unseen God. Meaning the way that the writers answer this is both of them point to a relationship that forms a oneness with God by his spirit. Every one of them. And that's fitting considering the new covenant's promise is that's the way we're going to know him. Amen. Amen. So how can we test if what I'm saying is true? I'm going to read a few passages of scripture to you and I'm going to take, I'm going to take the liberty of substituting relationship for the term faith. Can I just say here, what yes. you're basically saying is that we've gotten the wrong definition of faith. Yes. And that we have imposed a 21st century modern minimalist definition of faith. And so when we read scripture, we, we see the word F-A-I-T-H and we think mental assent. We think Amen. something that is absent from a relationship. And what you're going to try to show is that the construct Paul creates when he talks about Abraham trusting God and walking in the steps of faith, that Paul's definition of faith you're suggesting is radically different. Amen. And so you're saying what Paul thought of, what Paul was conceiving when he would use the word faith was trusting relationship. Amen. And so now you're going to kind of give us an experiment of how that works. If we try using that definition, does everything harmonize? Amen. Okay. That's it. That's it. So you, when you read these passages, if you think of faith being mental assent, believe it or not, are reading that into every passage that you read. I want to break that cycle by reading it with relationship there rather than faith and see if a light goes on. Okay. All okay. Right. So here we go. This is in Romans 4. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that relationship with God was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Did so you hear it there? You're swapping it there. Okay. 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 How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Listen to what he goes on to say. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by relationship with God while he was still uncircumcised. Does that make more sense of that passage? Okay, so you're, you're substituting, you're taking the word faith and you're replacing it with the phrase relationship with God or trusting relationship. Yes. Because you believe that that is the proper definition Amen. of faith. Okay. Amen. So we see here that Paul's saying in Romans, he's saying, so when, when Abraham was in right relationship with God, when, when Abraham walked with God, he goes, was it after a circumcision or before a circumcision? And he said he already was made right with God because he was in a relationship with God Amen. called faith. Okay, so here we go. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of a trusting relationship with God that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Do you guys hear? I mean, go read this passage. Just substitute what I'm saying in there and tell me if you don't just sit there and go, 
I see what Paul's arguing for now. He's trying to tell these guys, no, look, your circumcision or uncircumcision is of not is of not importance, but this relationship working itself through love. Amen. So here we go. For he did not weaken in his trusting relationship with God when he considered his own body as good as dead. Do you hear that? He didn't weaken in his faith. He didn't weaken in trusting in God with all Amen. his heart. Okay? And when he considered the barrenness of Saren's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his trust of God and gave glory to God. Amen. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised, that is why his trusting relationship with God was counted to him as righteousness. Amen. So, so we're kind of doing Brother Zach's new amplified version. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm sure we'll be accused of that later. Yeah. But that's not my point, because my point is you're reading into that passage something. A definition that is false. It, that's it. And I'm trying to just break that paradigm and say, no, no, no. It, it, the because scripture lays out clearly. In fairness, a lot of Christians, if you said, will you accept this definition of faith, a trusting relationship with God? I think a lot of Christians would say yes. Yes. But while they mentally adhere to that, if, if confronted, their actual practice and the actual framework of their theology is not faith defined as a trusting relationship. Instead, it is faith defined as mental assent. And it's not a, a faith in God. It's in a faith in facts about what God did. Amen. And that, there's no scripture that suggests that we are saved or justified by believing what he did. Right. This is this is another little pee and shell trick here. We're 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 saved and justified by believing Him. Amen. And, by, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We can't claim to have faith unless we have a relationship, which means relating, where He speaks and faith comes by hearing Amen. what He spoke. Let Let's let the rubber hit the the road here for a minute on this. So a Christian says, "I do believe that." Um, a trusting relationship with God is what's most important. And yet, if they distrust God and shrink back in unbelief and do not obey the things that God is putting out in front of them to walk out in, if Abraham doesn't leave the land of Ur, if he doesn't take Isaac up on the mountain, if he doesn't circumcise himself and those who are with him to come into covenant with God, he starts to distrust God. And as a result, is no, no longer walking in a trusting relationship. So here's what's interesting. Most Christians, I can tell you, I've met with enough of them that say, you know, I had this powerful encounter with God and all these things were moving in my life. And then all of a sudden now I'm in this terrible spot. I'm not walking with the Lord anymore. And I don't know what happened. I've been reading my Bible. I've been memorizing scriptures. I've been going to Bible studies. What do you think occurred? And almost always there will be an event in their life in which they heard something like, Abraham, take that son of yours and take him up onto the mountain. And rather than trusting in God in that moment and continuing to take the steps of faith, unbelief came over their heart. And that's when they default back to a different form of religion that says, but I'm still okay because I know that Jesus died for my sins and I prayed the prayer. You see, they're going back to a workspace salvation yes. to make them feel comfortable about distrusting God. So let's take it a step further. Let's replace the word faith. Let's, let's explain the word faith or interpret the word faith with the, word trust, with the term trusting relationship. And let's explain the, the word works with formulas. Amen. Because 
a formula, a, a doctrinal formula, is as much a work of the flesh that disengages relationship as, you know, doing hard work or you know, circumcision or sacrifices. Amen. It's something that allows us to step back. It's Amen. something that says, I don't have to draw near. I don't have to press on. I can shrink back in, in the writer of Hebrews words unto perdition, but I'm okay because I'm circumcised or because I've said the sinner's prayer or I've had this moment Amen. encounter. Both of these are stepping back from that vulnerable relationship Amen. that we believe faith describes. Amen. And what we're going to get into today if we get through this is discipline or discipleship. And it's interesting because what people are finding in this journey is the demands of love come at high cost. And so that's why this faith has to continue to trust in God because it is going to require and ask of you things that if you do not divorce yourself from, you will not have that oneness of relationship that you desire with him. He loved the rich young ruler and told him, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor and come and trust in me. Amen. You know, so many people say, he asked, how do I get eternal life? Why didn't he just say, believe in me and you'll have eternal life? He did. He said, sell your possessions and trust in me. You see, when you define faith as a trusting relationship, now you can say he did answer to the rich young ruler, believe in me. He just said it in words we don't normally hear. He when he said believe. A trusting relationship construct. That's it. That was how he was presenting faith to this. Amen. Man, offering faith to this. Man. So I, just because I don't want you to feel it's isolated, listen to Romans 9 when you insert this for faith. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by relationship with God. So remember Paul in Romans 9 here is talking about the Gentiles. And he's saying the Gentiles weren't eagerly going after Mosaic law. And yet they obtained something, a right standing with you, because they were willing to avail themselves in relationship to you. Now listen to what he goes on. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by relationship with God, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Do you hear it there? Isn't that remarkable? They didn't, when we read that, most people go, wait, they didn't pursue the law by faith. How would they have pursued the law by faith? Well, that's because you think it's mental assent. It doesn't work that way. But if you read it, they did not pursue the law by a trusting relationship in God. Then you start to go, oh, the law was pointing them to a dependence upon God that they rejected and said, nope, we'll get my own works to settle the issue and move on. Amen. And he says, because they pursued it that way, they didn't get the righteousness that the Gentiles got. Amen. The Gentiles got it because they tore open their heart and said, Here's that holy light, shine it into my heart and make me right in relationship, God. Amen. Amen. Ephesians 2.8, here's a favorite. For by grace you have been saved through access to relationship with God. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. I would argue in Ephesians 2.8, Paul is saying, how did we get this access into relationship with God? It is by His grace that you have gotten this. It is not because you are circumcised. It is not because you are Jewish. It is not because you are Gentile. It is all equal footing at the cross. This relationship of being baptized into His death and raised with Him in the newness of life came to you by one thing and one thing only, by His grace. 
That's what he's arguing there. He is not arguing that it is by grace you have been saved. That means that, that you'll never do anything and everything's already been done for you. That would be a very crazy reading of this passage. And it's a very um, disturbing reading when you considered that when he ran into these believers at the church of Ephesus in Acts 19, he tells them immediately, you need to get baptized into Jesus' name and you need to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. So He asks (laughs) them, did they receive power, the Holy Spirit, when they believed? Amen. So he didn't say, oh, you believed? You're all set. God bless you. By grace, you've been saved. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Amen. Okay, this is the last one. This is James 2. And, and we already read it, but I'm going to read it now with relationship. And this is, this is fun, okay? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has relationship with God but does not have works? Oof, did that one hurt anybody out there? <laughs> I know a lot of people that say they have relationship with God. So here we go. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has relationship with God but does not have works? Can that faith save him? But someone will say, you have relationship and I have works. Show me your relationship apart from your works. And I will show you my trusting relationship with God by my works. Do you see the author's argument now? Brother, how is that any different than what John is saying in 1 John 2 when he says, By this we know that we have come to know him. Amen. If we keep his commandments. Amen. And know his relationship there. It's Ginosko. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Amen. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Amen. How is that any different? Amen. It's exactly verbatim what John is saying. So you see now scriptures are not firing shots at one another and this disharmonious, you know, combat that we all get in, interjected into and go, oh, what's going on here? Why, why couldn't the writers get together and have a conference and just say the same thing? They're saying the same thing. We've gone by the devil's dictionary. And he is an author of confusion. He's redefining all these terms. And then we're coming to him and going, wait, I don't understand. What is it then? It's simple. It is relationship with God that saves you. And that relationship requires a trust that's going to demand your all. Amen. So here he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that mental assent apart from acts of trust is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his relationship was active along with his works, and his relationship was made complete by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Is there any confusion anymore of what it means that Abraham believed God? I mean, if you will define faith correctly, it all reads the way... You want it to read. And here I'm just going to say, you want it to read this way only if you have one desire, to know him. Only if you said, I have counted it loss, the loss of all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing him. If that's your desire, these scriptures to you are life because they say, okay, I get it. To abide in him, to know him, to trust him, to step out in faith, to take the steps of obedience that God is speaking into my heart. This is the dynamic of eternal life. 
Those that love God don't want it any other way. They don't want it to be some philosophical ascent to something that happened in a courtroom way off in the heavens. They want it to be relational. They want to know God. They want to walk after him. They want to walk with him as in the cool of the day. And it's the greatest desire and burden of their heart. Amen. You know, would you really want it to be just something you mentally said or, or some one act you went and did and now everything's right? You would only want that if you're infatuated with yourself. Amen. But if you're trying to divorce yourself from yourself Amen. and die to yourself, and you've come into agreement with the cross and want to be immersed into his death. Now you can say just to know him, even in the fellowship of his sufferings. Oh God, I just want to know you, Lord. Amen. I'm not going to go any further. There's a few other things I said, but I think we've made our, our Amen. point here. Redefining faith. And, and I think that's, I think it's coming home really clear to people. And that's why there are scriptures that we have to, that, that those who don't subscribe to this view have to work around. Yes. But we don't have to work around scriptures. It all harmonizes and Amen. fleshes itself out in a complete picture if we get correct definitions and terms. And if you just if you look at Hebrews 11 at that defining Amen. chapter of faith, you're going to see by faith Abraham obeyed. By faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, rejecting the identity of sin. By faith he went out. By faith Noah built an ark. By faith, Sarah received strength. The, all of these things show that by, by this trust in a relationship with God, they were enabled, they were empowered. And it's no different today. And even in Hebrews 11, the writer says that Noah, through his obedience that came from faith, he became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Amen. So the righteousness according to faith did not start in the New Testament. It started with Noah. That's why Paul predicates his entire faith premise on Abraham's faith. Amen. So Paul emphasizes Abraham, the writer of Hebrews, likely also Paul, emphasizes Noah, Abraham, and all the rest. But faith, we have to properly define faith. And if you look at this Colossians 1 passage, Colossians 1.19, it says, He is before all things, and in Him, I'm starting in verse 17, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will, have, will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, and that, that's, that could just be rendered engaged in sin. That's what was formerly the case. You used to be engaged in this. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So that's a, that's a past tense reality. He has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. But then there's this conditionality. He has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if you continue in the faith. So he's done this. 
And he's, he's done it in order to present you holy and blameless. But it is contingent on you continuing in the faith. It's a status that you have based on continuation, on pressing in, on ongoing transformation. As soon as you make that faith a static thing, then your status of blameless before God goes away. Because the blameless status belongs to the one who's continuing in pilgrimage toward transformation Amen. by sanctification. So you cannot, we got to deconstruct this construct that allows faith to be a moment in time and instead see that the imputation is based on the continuation. So the same thing he's saying in, in, in Hebrews when he says, he has perfected forever those and then the tense changes from past tense. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the status refers to what he accomplished at the cross in that complete oneness that is in Jesus. But your conformity to Jesus and your oneness with Jesus is a process. He finished it at the cross and it's a static thing. It's done. It's a done deal. But your, its application to your life is not. So it's yours so long as you remain in process, so long as you remain a pilgrim with your heart set on Zion, if you continue in the faith. It's the same that he's saying in Acts 15 when he says, the gospel saves you in which you now stand, by which you are being saved. It's a process unless you believed in vain. So this static, complete work of Christ at the cross is only imputed to those who are in a motion of faith, who are pressing on to know the Lord. Those who have this complacent attitude that says it's a done deal, they are hiding behind formulas. They are disengaging from relationship. They are leaving the faith. Were you going to share something? I was just... What keeps resonating in my heart and mind is how Paul begins and ends the book of Romans. It's like the first five verses. I'm going to read it in the NIV. It says, Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Amen. And that's, that's what just keeps... Are we arguing that... We set aside grace. No, we do not believe that any sort of human works coming from our own efforts in the flesh will ever produce the grace of God flowing in our life. Amen. But those that are broken in humility, that know that they, everyone needs compassion, the kindness of a Savior, like we Amen. sang. When we have that and we are humbling ourselves and God's grace truly does begin moving in our lives, what we're saying is it will produce the works of faith. Amen. It will produce this trusting relationship that says, Lord, I don't see this, but I live by faith Amen. and not by sight. Amen. So I'm going to continue to obey you. I just have to throw in a definition real quick. Yes. This isn't as clean, but here's, here's Devil's Dictionary on grace. Grace, God's indifference to sin because he has unconditional love. Amen. That's, that's what I hear a lot of people describe grace as. But how would you actually reconcile that with he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble i thought it's an unconditional favor that he has you know i thought it's god's indifference towards sin because he has this unconditional love for for everyone 
Now let's put a biblical definition of grace. Grace, God's power given to those who humbly depend on him to overcome their flesh, this world, and the devil. Amen. To someone who humbles himself and says, God, give me every bit of supply that comes in the relationship with you to overcome the sin, the flesh, the world, the devil. Lord, let me yield myself to you and receive all that is needed to overcome all of this. You know, and, and again, you'll be surprised if you get these definitions right, how scriptures aren't, you know, they're, they're, they're not, not contradicting. They're not contradicting one another at all. And I just, I want to I build on that that you just said, because whatever works are done from grace, see 1 Corinthians 15.10, whatever works are done from grace or the inspiration of the Spirit, they cannot be classified as human works. They do not fall under the rubric of Paul's works excoriation in Romans or Galatians. Because Jesus says, when the, the Father will give you what to say and how to say it, and it will not be you speaking. So you cannot call it human works when it is inspired by grace. And you cannot say that grace does not inspire works. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, or the NIV says, was not without effect, for I worked harder than all of you, but it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Amen. So I want to segue right there to Brother Kevin, and you Amen. give us a question if you have it. If, if you've received any questions, that's also got a great. good question related Perfect. to this. Some will say they have relationships with God, that they obey every time they hear his voice, etc. Yet their lives are broken, their decisions lack wisdom, their description of God's character or nature is confused. What can be said to the person who would agree with your description of faith as trusting relationship, but who are potentially serving a golden calf to whom they apply the name of God who rescued them out of Egypt? I, I think that the word there is key, which is they're potentially serving a golden calf. I don't think it would be, it would be right to immediately categorize someone because they're struggling in the development of a trusting relationship with God that this means they're just serving some false idol. I'd much rather take someone who is talking to me about the steps of faith. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe there's too much inconsistency here, but he's saying that someone has come to him saying, I'm in a trusting relationship. I am taking steps of obedience, but there are a lot of things that I'm still working through. There are a lot of things that are still inconsistent. We need to really look at that and say, you know, what are we talking about? What's inconsistent? If they're powerless over sin, then there's some steps in relationship that God is asking them to take that they need to take. And, and namely to be buried into his death and to be raised with him in the newness of his life. So maybe there's an insufficient revelation, you know, that's there. But you, you would really need to know where someone is coming from. The key is, is is that someone is engaging in God, recognizing that they have to avail their heart in relationship to God. That this is not, there is no quick fix here. There, there is a mindset that says, in me is death and in you is life. Lord, how do I become in you? How does this happen? Lord. And God is going to take someone on a journey to get them there. And we are all going to be very patient with one another in that process to get them there. Amen. Amen. Maybe that's not what he's saying. Maybe he's saying something sharper than that. When Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. The doing that he's talking about is the fruit that he says he would have us bear once we abide in the vine. And in John, uh, he says that 
uh, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. So the greatest proof that someone has a saving relationship with God is if they are doing the impossible. In short, if the grace of God is empowering them to obey. And that's not obey the occasional thing I think I hear. That's important, but it's obeying the scripture. His commands have been laid out in scripture. Amen. And he may apply them personally, but his commands are complete in the scripture. And so loving one's neighbor, loving God, bearing the fruits of the spirit, those are the hallmarks Amen. by which we assess or assay our relationship with God. Now, if that's there, if those are present in our lives, then we give him glory and we say, this is not by works that I can boast in. This is by the grace Amen. of God. I am what I am. Amen. If someone says, oh, I've got this relationship with God. It's what I read in, in uh, 1 John 2, 3. Whoever says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And I think that the commandments we should first assess come from scripture. And I'm not, we're not simply saying that having a private contact where we get commandments that are not contained in scripture and we get to ignore the scriptural commandments and choose our own, that would seem disingenuous to us. Um, I took uh, two definitions off of a very popular uh, evangelical website called the Gospel Coalition. Are, are we not, I guess the question is, and then I'll read the definitions, are we not sort of conflating two things here in justification and sanctification Yes, in, in what we're speaking. Okay, and, and I'll, I'll just give you the definitions here so that we can, we can respond to them maybe. And they're short. Justification refers to God's declaration that someone is determined to be righteous in his sight. It is a one-time act whereby God declares a sinner like you and me to be not only not guilty, but perfectly righteous before his high bar of justice. And then sanctification would be, on the other hand, is the continual process of being made more holy. It is the progressive conformity of the one who has been justified into the image of their Savior by the work of the Holy Spirit. So I think this is important. I think you've already addressed a lot of this, but it's important, I think, to address this very specifically because yeah. we, we tend to think in these categories. Yeah, and these categories are false. The idea of taking the elements of salvation, justification, sanctification, regeneration, uh, glorification, and breaking them into these discrete events that happen in heaven somewhere apart from our uh, uh, participation. This is not done in scripture. This is the hallmark of a deteriorating paradigm. The encompassing rubric, the encompassing container that includes all of these elements, justification, sanctification, all of it, is relationship of faith. That's the rubric, that's the big container. And all of it is happening simultaneously. So when somebody, when somebody comes to God and begins to live by faith, begins to walk in faith, as soon as that faith begins, their salvation begins. But what, what that relationship and what that faith is all about is trusting God to transform them. Amen. It's not a Amen. static thing where he declares us righteous Amen. in heaven. It is saying we covenant with a new husband and we receive his identity. Can we divorce that husband? Yes, that's what apostasy is. It's divorce. Can we draw back unto perdition? Yes. Can we have a faith that starts well, but then we're taken captive again and we cease to continue in the faith? Yes, we can. So the whole notion that sanctification is the thing that happens subsequent to justification is false. 
Sanctification is what happens in the relationship that also justifies us. If sanctification is aborted, then we cease to be saved. He says, pursue peace with all men and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So you will not see the Lord unless you pursue sanctification. Now that word pursue or chase after or strive for, that does not accord with their view on, on justifying righteousness. It's the same thing he's saying in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 when he says, But we should also give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So God chose us for salvation through the process of sanctification. And it means that while this process is ongoing, whatever I lack will be imputed if I'm still in a posture of faith. But if I become complacent and I say, oh, I can see the Lord without sanctification, then I'm no longer walking by faith. I am drawing back unto perdition. I am in unbelief. So it's, again, this whole construct of justification happens, then sanctification begins, and it's a long optional process. This is a false construct imposed on Scripture. Paul parses no such distinction, and in fact, he makes sanctification as much the proprietary work of Christ as justification. They like to say, oh, we've got to pursue sanctification because that's the righteousness we get to participate in as God slowly changes us. And boy, is it slow. But, but the work of justifying righteousness, that's done by Christ and no one else. This is false. This is false. Scripture insists that sanctifying righteousness is as much the work of Christ as justifying righteousness. It is the work of the Spirit. We are sanctified by the washing of water through the Word. All of this sanctification and justification is the work of God. All of it. And when we engage in the process of faith that says, Okay, Lord, I trust you, and I'm going to begin to yield my whole being to be conformed to your image, to obey your word, we're never going to be perfect in that. And so we're never going to receive heaven because we were sufficiently sanctified. We're going to receive heaven because we engaged in the process of faith that began sanctification and therefore his righteousness was imputed to us, whatever we were lacking. But if we disengage the process of sanctification, we have fallen from the faith, we have fallen from grace, and we are not justified. Amen. This is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, speaking of the promises of God, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. When, I, when you talk about right. sanctification, that's, that's, that's describing an ongoing process that's taking place. And it's actually right in the context of Paul pleading with them not to receive the grace of God in vain. Amen. So the grace of God is actually leading us to a whole set of promises that in the fear of the Lord, we've got to participate in this cleansing that Amen. comes through the washing of the word in the fear of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You know what's always weird about these questions? Like, It, it seems as though uh, the Gospel Coalition is saying, we hear everything that you just said, but I'd just like to clarify, how would you handle the scripture that says the justified man had a moment of faith in which he was made right? Amen. And all of us go, well, uh, 
I'm sorry, but I don't know that passage. You must be referring to the passage that says the justified man shall live by a trusting relationship in God or the justified man shall live by faith. So how is it that in areas in which we have the very term they are fixed on, justification, that it says the just man, the justified man shall live, his life will be one of trusting in God. I mean, it's the oddest thing. And let me just say this. Didn't not scripture speak abundantly about how I saved you out of the iron furnace? I saved you out of the house of sin and bondage to Israel. And yet he said with most, he was not pleased. Listen how Jude says this, because here's our term save that they say is a once and forever act of declaration that has occurred because this is justification. You don't understand your categories. You guys are doing a great job up there, but you're blending categories. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. The, the authors do not say anything like this. They said that, that you are going to be holy and blameless and above reproach if you continue in faith, stable and steadfast. If you continue in your relationship with God, stable and steadfast. That was the Colossians 1 passage. Hebrews 10 says it, that you need to endure after having done the will of God, receiving then what was promised. And he goes on, because if you shrink back, my soul has no pleasure in you, but the one that is right with me will continue to live by faith. That's what he said. The one who is right with me, that word is the one who is justified. James says it. So then we know then that we are not justified by faith alone. I mean, isn't that interesting that they're saying it's the only place that they say it. And yet where it says it is that. So here's Jude and I'll be done. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, you hate when they say that. That says something's been lost in the church. I mean, I mean it when I read something like that. It's just this pain you feel that sits there and goes, wait, he says, I want to remind you about something. But you guys, you used to know this. When I taught you these things, these things weren't a question. You knew these things. Listen to what he said. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved, does that sound like a past tense? Who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Is it fair to say I was delivered and saved from the house of sin and bondage, but I still have got to continue on in a relationship with God? What else is the scripture teaching in this passage besides something like that? I'll just say in in Romans 6, 7, where he says, uh, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So he defines crucifying our flesh as ceasing to be a slave of sin. Amen. Doesn't mean you don't make mistakes, but you're not a slave of sin anymore. He says, for he who has died is freed from sin. And that's diakuo, and that's justified. That's declared righteous. It's the same as he's saying Galatians 5 when he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So... We do not enjoy the declared righteousness of Christ unless we are living with a death to our flesh that causes us to no longer be slaves to sin. If we go back to that slavery, then then he has died in vain for us. And that's what he's saying when he says, Greater love hath no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends, speaking of himself. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And so there's got to be this 
that, that word they translate freed is the word justified everywhere else. That is the same word. Amen. It's the same construct. It's yep. declared righteous. And so we, that says that we have got to be living in repentance, no longer slaves to sin, if we would expect to have this justification. And whatever we do, whatever, whatever righteousness we fulfill, it will never be enough to save us. We have to enjoy the imputed righteousness of Christ. But it is imputed to those who are in process, not to those who sit in complacent uh, uh, unbelief and call it faith. Amen. Uh, what do you think about reading this? Sure, go ahead. Okay, here we go. This is John Wesley. Calvinists who deny that salvation can ever be lost reason on the subject in a marvelous way. They tell us that no virgin's lamp can go out, no promising harvest be choked with thorns, no branch in Christ can ever be cut off from unfruitfulness, no pardon can ever be forfeited, and no name blotted out of the book or of God's book. They insist that no salt can ever lose its savor, nobody can ever receive the grace of God in vain, bury his talents, neglect such a great a salvation, trifle away a day of grace, look back after putting his hand to the gospel plow. Nobody can grieve the spirit till it is quenched and strives no more, nor deny the Lord that has bought them, nor bring upon themselves swift destruction. Nobody or body of believers can ever get so lukewarm that Jesus will spew them out of his mouth. They use reams of paper to argue that if one ever got lost, he was never found. That if one ever falls, he never stood. If one ever is cast forth, he was never in. If one ever withered, he was never green. And then if any man draws back, it proves that he never had anything to draw back from. That if one ever falls away into spiritual darkness, he was just never enlightened. That if you again get yourself entangled in the pollutions of this world, it shows that you never escaped. That if you put salvation away, you never had it to put away. If you make shipwreck of your faith, it just shows there was no ship of faith to begin with. In short, they say, if you get it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. May God save us from accepting a doctrine that must be defended by such fallacious, say it for fallacious. me, fallacious reasoning. Amen. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I, I find myself just going, okay, <laughs> next question. Yeah. Amen. If, if someone is just listening with an honest heart right now and is really wanting to seek after God and is saying, okay, I hear what you're saying. I hear you. Okay. And I've lost that. I'm Amen. not walking by faith right now. Amen. I don't have a trusting relationship with God. As a matter of fact, I don't even know if I hear his voice anymore. And so, so what must I do? How do I get out of this? How do I get out of these patterns of sin? How, who can deliver me from this body of sin and death? Why do I have a Romans seven Christianity? And I, you know, I, I'll, I'll give a, a 30 second testimony of, of what it looked like for me, but then maybe you can talk about, you know, how, how that should, or how a person should be thinking about this. But for me, it looked like me sitting in my car in a Chili's parking lot in Santa Clarita, California, saying, God, I don't know what to do. I've cried out. I've sought you. I've done everything I know how to do. I've tried to change my behavior. I've done, I, I, I've, I've, I've tried to repent. I've done everything I know how to do. But for some reason, I keep walking in sin. And I can't, for some reason, I just can't break free of whatever it is that's keeping me in bondage to this sin. And so, God, I need you to humble me. 
I don't know how to do it myself. I've tried to humble myself, but I don't know how and I can't. So whatever you have to do, please do it, God. Please do whatever you would have to do. And, and, and I'll, I'll pay whatever the cost is. And I, I'll, I'll do, I'll follow you no matter where you take me, no matter how much it costs, no matter what it looks like, God, but I can't do this anymore. I need you to do something in my life and I'm willing to do it whatever you call me to. Lord, please speak to me. I promise you that I will hear your voice and I will do whatever you want me to do. And it took this, 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 this just end of myself, sort of like, God, if you don't do something, I've got nothing. And, 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 and he responded. And that started a whole different trajectory in my life. And so I, I would ask you, how do you break that down into, into maybe help explain to somebody because everyone's in a different situation. Everyone has a different experience and not everybody's going to go sit in their car and just cry out in repentance to God. Um, what, what would you say to that? If somebody's listening and they say, I hear you, I want to enter into this. I want to walk by faith. I know that I'm not doing it right now. What must I do? Well, the Lord says in the day you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. So it may not be in a Chili's parking lot, but there is no repentance that does not entail that kind of brokenness that you described. And without repentance, there is no death, there is no declaration of righteousness. So James seems to be speaking to believers who were in the place you were in when you, when you were parked at Chili's. And he says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? And then he goes on, he begins to quote from the Old Testament, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So cleanse your hands. That means stop touching what you know the Lord has forbidden. Take it off the table as an option. Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. How do I purify my heart? Well, my heart refers to my desire, my motive. So when I have mixed motives then I'm double-minded and I don't receive anything from the Lord. But the pure in heart shall see God. One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. So we've got to, we've got to simplify our lives. We've got to say, I want this, I want that, I desire this, I'd love to experience that, but there's nothing I desire more than to be right with you, O God. How does he say it? Whom have I in heaven but thee? I desire nothing on earth besides thee. Oh, God. So there's got to come this something inside of us, this urgency, this desperation, this seeking of the Lord. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinner. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then he commands us. The, the apostle James issues a commandment to complacent Christians. He says, lament and mourn. Lament. That means to wail for someone who's died. Lament and mourn. Let your laughter, your complacent pride, be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Let there be a sorrow. Let there be a brokenness. Let there be a contrition. What are the acceptable sacrifices to God? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. He is near to the brokenhearted and save such as have a contrite spirit. So James says, lament and mourn. 
Mourn for the relationship you lost. Mourn for the love that grew cold. Mourn for the faith that took one great step and stalled. Mourn for the relationship with God that is no more. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. And he starts the whole thing by describing this in this way. Draw near Amen. to God and he will draw near to you. And that's the heart that is going to find grace. That is, that is the soul, that is the, the attitude that is going to meet with God. And God is a spirit. Jesus told the woman at the well, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Do not come to God as your buddy. Hey, Lord, I just want to, oh, no. Come to him as the holy king of kings and the almighty. Come to him as the author and giver of life. Come to him as the judge of the ages. Come to him as a supplicant, as a broken man, as a shattered vessel. And say, Lord, if I'm going to be broken, I'd rather be broken for you. Jesus said, fall on the rock and be broken. The rock of truth. The rock of how it really is. The rock of Christ. Or else that rock is going to fall on you and grind you to powder. So let the images shatter. Let the fears of how I'll look or how I'll sound, let it all shatter. Amen. That's what it means to fall on the rock. He says, I want you to tear your hearts and not your garments through the prophet. Humble yourself. Come to the Lord. Bring with you words, not flowing words of eloquence, words of brokenness. What you described Amen. in that prayer is faith. And God recognized faith. You thought it was shattered brokenness. You thought it was hopelessness. But the end of man is the beginning of God. When man reaches his limits, God begins. That was the work of the Spirit. That was the kindness of God bringing you to repentance. Kindness showing you how futile all your formulas, all your efforts, all your labors were, but that God was able. So if there's anybody who's in this place, hear the word of the Lord that we are speaking and humble yourself. Get on your floor, close the, the closet door and scream into the carpet. Cry out to God until your soul is emptied at the feet of the one who died for you and see if he does not meet you with a presence, with a grace, with a power that enables you to transcend whatever limitation sin has placed on you. Amen. And if anybody is, is feeling conviction, you just pray. We can't hear you, but God can. Maybe I could just lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we don't know how to come to you. We can't come with the strength of our righteousness. We can't come, Lord, with the power of our will. We can only come with the broken shards of our weakness, our failures, our brokenness, God. But you said that you dealt with broken things. You said that you were near to people like us. We refuse to hide behind the fig leaves of human formulas and human doctrines that enable us to hide from the conviction of your spirit that has whispered in our souls since being a child. We know your voice and we know you're calling us to repentance. 
We know that that repentance is death, but it's only death to sin. It's only death to the flesh. We, we know that that repentance is unto life. And so, Lord, we embrace the collapse of our excuses, the collapse of our pride, the collapse of Humpty Dumpty. Let him fall until all the king's men and all the king's horsemen cannot put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Let our pride be in ruins. And out of these ashes, let your grace have its way. Take us into your arms, the arms of your presence. And let us receive your Holy Spirit. Let us be baptized in the power of your Holy Spirit until a regenerating grace flows from us, changing and transforming us. Amen. Help us to find your body and submit ourselves to the discipling course of sanctification. Help us to take one step at a time as pilgrims on a long journey. Amen. Help us to never quit. Blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, Lord. Don't ever let us take our hearts from that course. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. God uses broken things. He takes broken swords. To give us golden grain And God uses broken clouds To bring the rain Amen. And broken grain To give our daily bread And broken bread To give Oh, so Lord, if I'm gonna be broken, I'd rather be broken for you. Cause you have a way of taking broken things and making them just like new. Oh. 